welcome to the Women's Theology Speakeasy, a space dedicated to hearing the voices of women over the din. everybody to the first episode in the second series of the Women's Theology Speakeasy and I have a real treat for you today because I have the fabulous Elizabeth Schrader with me who is a fascinating textual critic and ladies you're going to be so excited about her work I can't even begin to tell you. So hi Elizabeth. Hello! Thank you so much for coming. So glad to be here. Cannot begin to tell you how excited I am to be interviewing you today. So to start, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about who you are and what your research entails? Well, I am a doctoral student at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina in the USA. I'm very excited to be speaking to a British person. You're going to sound so cool that there's going to be a British accent on this podcast. I'll tell everybody. But uh, so I work on, I'm, I'm, uh, my, my subject is early Christianity, and I also focus on New Testament and textual criticism. Those are sort of my specialties under the umbrella of early Christianity. And um, I'm very interested, uh, particularly in Mary Magdalene, and I'm very interested in textual problems in the manuscripts of the New Testament around the women. And there are some pretty major textual problems around the women that have not really um, been discussed. And so I, I'm enjoying going and looking at, at gaining the expertise and going and looking at the manuscripts and, and make, writing it up so that people can see what's happening and then presenting it so that there's a, a wider awareness of these textual problems. Uh, it sounds amazing. And I mean, ladies, if you're any good at Greek, this could be a career for you. You should definitely you know, join Elizabeth in the fight of finding women. You, you haven't always been a textual critic, have you? Uh, you you've had no. quite a career change. It Yes. It's very strange, in fact. Um, you don't grow up saying, I want to be a text critic, or at least we don't in the United States. Um, I grew up saying I want to be a singer songwriter. Um, and so I went to college and I, I got a degree in music. And when I graduated, I was in a band and we won a bunch of contests. And I was a professional musician for a very long time, I think for 12 years. And um, I toured a bunch, I got to be on an episode of the Gilmore Girls. I know some people like that show. I, I toured with some big artists. Um, I don't know if they're also known in, uh, in the UK, but uh, Jewel... Um, India, Ari, um, Poe, there's some people that sometimes people know and sometimes they don't. Um, so I, I had some sort of, some, some good successes in the music business and, but you know, I was starting to get sort of burnt out from it. And around that time, you know, I'm a, I'm a pop singer songwriter. I'm not, you know, like a Christian artist, even though I am a Christian, I, I'm not like a Christian artist. And I, when I was living in New York, um, I was, uh, I've always had an active spiritual life and there was a Catholic church actually not too far from my sister's house in Brooklyn. I was living with my sister at the time and I went to this garden and I, um, it's a garden dedicated to the Virgin Mary and I was praying and I, I always make it very clear that this isn't something that happens to me often. I think it's happened to me maybe three times in my life. I actually heard a response in words, which happens has happened to me a grand total of three times in my whole life. And the words were, maybe you should talk to Mary Magdalene about that. 
so strange because I was in a garden dedicated to the Virgin Mary. And I was just like, what? Cause, and that's the sort of one of those times when you know that it's not, um, it didn't come from you because that literally would, would never have occurred to me. And so I thought that was very odd. And so I decided to go to the Brooklyn Public Library and I, um, and I checked out The Complete Idiot's Guide to Mary Magdalene. I literally knew nothing. I mean, I had, go- I, I'm an Episcopalian. I grew up going to church, but I didn't really know anything about her, um, beyond sort of what I had been taught in church. And so I read the book and then I, I just, it's, it sort of like took over my life. It's so strange. And, and I, I got this idea. I said, I want to look at the oldest manuscript of the Gospel of John and see if anything was changed. Amazing. That was my layperson idea. That was my layperson idea. I was literally like a songwriter and a piano teacher in Brooklyn saying, I want to look at the oldest copy of the Gospel of John and see if anything has been changed. Am I the first person who had that thought? I don't know. But um, through a friend of my hometown parish priest, um, I'm in Oregon right now for the holidays. It was here in Oregon. Um, he said, oh, you need to talk to this lady. And then she said, oh, that friend said, you need to talk to Deirdre Good at General Theological Seminary, which was in Manhattan, which was just, you know, one train ride away from where I lived in Brooklyn. So Deirdre very generously uh, met me for coffee. And I said, I want to look, you know, I had done some Googling. I said, I want to, I want to look at Papyrus 66. I had said, you know, that's, that's what I found out was the oldest copy of the Gospel of John. I said, I want to look at that. And she, she said, uh, I said, you don't have it in your library. Like, how, how do I get to look at that? And so she kindly sent me a link to actually the IG, IGNTP, the International Greek New Testament Project, which I believe is centered in Birmingham. Is that correct? Yes, my husband works on it. Well, I was just a lay person, and this is back, it was in May of 2012, and I actually have it in my phone as my P66-aversary, because I looked at it, and I saw that the IGNTP um, transcription, that it looked like the name Mary had been crossed out twice in Papyrus 66. Now, I didn't, I didn't read Greek. I was using Google Translate. This is really bad. I was using Google Translate, which I do not recommend, because it doesn't really work. But as a lay person, um, I could see enough that the name Mary appeared to have been crossed out a couple of times. And I kind of, and Hia Delphi still works in Greek. And I could see that the name Maria was changed to the sisters. The first time Maria was changed to say Martha. The second time Maria was changed to say Hia Delphi, the sisters. And I was like, it sounds like they're adding Martha. That's, I mean, that's what it looked like from Papyrus 66. And, um, I said, wait, there's another story with Martha. That's the Gospel of Luke. I was like, are they taking the character from the Gospel of Luke and sticking her into the Gospel of John? And so I sent it to Deirdre with the subject line. By the way, Deirdre was um, in a class. She, I think that she went to her undergrad with David Parker. Um, she's British. And so I think that's partly why she knew what was going on. I think um, she's uh, colleagues with David Parker. She's known him for a long time. I should, I should probably explain to my listeners who David Parker is. Ah, yeah. Uh, David Parker uh, yes. is a textual critic who's now retired from the University of Birmingham. He was my husband's supervisor for PhD. And he, he didn't have the Cadbury Yes, he was the Cadbury professor. Um, it's like an endowed chair. These are all things I should know as it was my university. Maybe he gets chocolate. You know, you get chocolate everywhere. I used to actually go to the church <laughs> next to Cadbury World. Um, and our priest used to get free chocolate ah. all the time. Ah! I have to go. Can you? Can we get them to make dark chocolate cream eggs? That's what I want. Dark chocolate Cadbury cream eggs. Why haven't they made those yet? 
I don't know. It's owned by an American company now, so oh, isn't it? It's Mondelo's International. Okay, well, we'll we'll work on that. That's another. That's the next goal. Totally off topic. The next friends. goal. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. So so yeah. So Deirdre had she knew about this website, and I saw that the name Mary had been crossed out. I sent her the transcription, and the subject line of my email had like ten exclamation points, and I said, Deirdre, look. They've crossed out the name Maria and they changed it to Martha. Are they adding Martha to the story? And her response was very interesting. And I was like, what? Come on. You know, this is, this is, this, they're changing it. And um, I think looking back on it now, now that I'm in academia, I think that Deirdre assumed that the work had been done because we've had Papyrus 66. It was discovered in 1952 in Egypt and it was published in 1958. So people had been working on it for um, over 50 years at that point. And so I think she thought, oh, you know, somebody must have, you know, already talked about this. The thing is, is that text critics had said, oh, yes, the name Mary has been crossed out twice. Yes, the name Mary has been changed to Martha. Yes, the name Maria has been changed to Hi Adelphi. But that was the end of it. Nobody had done anything. And I think that, which no which is just insane because you know we also have found um the Nag the Nag Hammadi library um that was found in 1945 and it was also published i think in the 50s all of that um all those papyri and we know in a lot of those texts that um Mary Magdalene is a particularly controversial figure um such as in the gospel of Philip and um in the gospel of Thomas and um also the Pista Sophia and um the gospel of Mary of course in all of those, we see sort of controversy around Mary Magdalene. And so we had the Nag Hammadi text and we had Papyrus 66. And I was like, did nobody think that crossing out the name Mary might be related to those? I, I Perhaps I'm the first person who ever had that thought, which to me sound, is insane. I, to me, I think that the work you, should have been done a while ago. Do you think um, that the Nag Hammadi text... Some of them were, were they found on a rubbish pile? That's Oxyrhynchus. I think Oxyrhynchus was found uh, in the rubbish okay. pile. Um, Nag Hammadi actually, it was found in a jar. And it's actually found walking distance from where Papyrus 66 was found. They might they might have come from the same place. Some people think they came from the same Pacomium monastery in Egypt. But, you know, it's impossible to know for certain. They were in two different jars. Anyway, the point is that I wrote a song about Mary Magdalene. And then I saw that there the name Mary had been crossed out a couple of times. And th- this is, of course, in the Lazarus story, I should clarify. And not everybody thinks that Lazarus's sister Mary is Mary Magdalene, but people have speculated that she might have been Mary Magdalene. Certainly going back to the third century, people have thought so. People have always been divided on that question over whether Mary of Bethany is Mary Magdalene. That's a that's a question. But I knew that that, that was a, that's why I looked in that part of papyrus 66 is because i knew that that was a question out there was whether that was mary magdalene and that was the name that was crossed out was lazarus's sister anyway so once i found that i was like nobody's done anything i kept going back to the brooklyn public library asking for like academic articles on interlibrary loan writing emails to deirdre writing emails to elaine piggles like trying to get somebody to do something and my best friend was like libby um you can't just keep bothering these scholars you're going to have to learn Greek and you're going to have to go get a master's degree. And I was like, ah, learning Greek. That sounds like the most boring thing I could possibly do with my time. Like that sounded like the most boring thing imaginable. But um, 
she was right. And I did end up just transferring or I ended up enrolling in a master's program at General Theological Seminary where Deirdre taught, which was in Manhattan, really close. And so it wasn't that big of a transition. I just got to live in Manhattan, which was fun. And um, then Deirdre became my, my thesis supervisor. And it was that thesis that got published in the Harvard Theological Review. Um, and that was the thesis that has brought me to this podcast. <laughs> yes. Uh, some, some wonderful ladies in Solly Hull, in one of my women's theology groups, studied Elizabeth's thesis. We studied it uh, fairly closely in parts. A bunch of lay people trying to read a master's thesis on Greek manuscripts. Um, and so that's, that's why I contacted Elizabeth, because her work is fascinating and anyone can get into this. I just wanted to circle back to the question of Mary Magdalene uh, being Mary of Bethany. Why, why do you think people have linked Mary Magdalene to Mary of Bethany? Um, do you think, I mean, some people might say that she should be Mary of Magdala, she should be from Magdala, and why, why might we think that's not actually the case? I'm actually working on a piece with Joan Taylor on this exact topic, um, and I literally just read it this morning, so it's very fresh in my mind. The The word migdol in Hebrew simply means tower, and um, a lot of scholars, including Richard Bauckham, have um, made the case that that it is a uh, it's related to her provenance um that there we know that there were many many towns in ancient Palestine called Migdal this or Migdal that Migdal Nunaya Migdal Gad um but he, uh, Bakum and others have suggested that um I think it's called Tarake was a it was a a Roman city and but basically some rabbis refer to Migdal Nunaya and Bauckham and others have suggested that Migdal-Nunaya and Tarake are the exact same place, even though no ancient author makes that makes that uh, claim. And so basically, um, Professor Taylor and I are, we have sort of traced the patristic record as well. And literally, um, we, we actually find the origin of people saying that Mary Magdalene was born in Magdala by the Sea of Galilee. And that claim originates in the 6th century and it has to do with pilgrim reports and so there is actually nothing in the earliest record origin of alexandria eusebius of caesarea jerome none of them say that mary came from uh this town by the sea of galilee and they all lived in palestine none of them know this magdala that mary is from by the sea of galilee um so we're saying if none of these church fathers who themselves lived in Caesarea, you know, were or, or in other parts of Palestine, and none of them had ever heard of that particular place that Bauckham says so forcefully is where she is from. We just have to, we have to doubt that a bit. And um, of course, Jerome thinks that it was a title given to her, Mary of the Tower. She, she was because of her towering faith. There's also rabbis who, who confuse her with Jesus's mother and says that she's a hairdresser and that um in and, and that the the word meg megadella references her being a hairdresser. So we just the thing is is that the the ancient patristic record people all say different things about it. Oh, Eusebius says that she's from a town called Magdalene. So the point is is that if it's really a very modern construct to call her Mary of Magdala. If you look back at the earliest record, some people thought it was where she was from, but some people thought it was a title that was given to her. 
And so the reason that I'm suggesting that Mary Magdalene could be considered to be Mary of Bethany is because of the witness of the Gospel of John itself. Because first of all, when Mary of Bethany anoints Jesus, Jesus says, let her save this for the day of my burial. And there is a Mary that goes to his tomb and it's Mary Magdalene. And so a reader of John's gospel would, there's there's a sort of a little clue there for the reader to connect this Mary with the Mary who goes to the tomb. Jesus says so in John 12, that she should save it for the day of his burial. It's interesting that John 12 is after John 11, but John 11 says that it's the Mary that had anointed him, and then the anointing happens in John 12. That is very interesting. That's something that the women's theology group picked that up while we were studying it. That is very, very interesting. A lot of people have different ideas about why that is, that proleptic reference. You don't have an answer for me. I do, but I'm going to keep it quiet. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, you'll have to read the published works when it comes out. <laughs> okay. Um, well, so what would be the significance of Mary of Bethany being... Mary Magdalene, and why why doesn't it really work that the Mary and Martha in Luke are the same people as the Mary and Martha that we find in John 11? Well, I should mention that um, the conclusion of my Harvard Theological Review article and the thesis that you're discussing is that I think that Martha has been added. I mean, that was sort of my first instinct when I saw what was happening in Papyrus 66, but what ended up happening was I looked at, at the time of writing over 100 manuscripts, now it's about 250 manuscripts of John's Gospel. And you can actually reconstruct almost the entire chapter without Martha. You have to cobble readings together from different manuscripts. In the HTR article, I do publish on page 381, like the first five verses of John 11, and Martha's not even there. And you use it by by using readings from Papyrus 66, Codex Alexandrinus, which is a really important manuscript. I think it's in the British Library. And... Um, and Codex Colbertinus, which is at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. And so if you, um, each of them have readings where Martha's not there, and you have to cobble John 11.1 from this manuscript, John 11.3 from this manuscript, all the way up through John 11.5, and you can actually get a different version of the story, a different text form that I'm suggesting was circulating. I'm saying that in the earliest part of Christianity, there was no Martha in John's Gospel, that it was Lazarus and Mary, and that they are a completely different family from Martha and Mary in Luke's gospel. And the only reason that people connect these two stories is because of Martha. Martha and Mary don't have a brother in Luke's gospel. It's just Martha and Mary. And moreover, they're pretty far away from Jerusalem. They seem to be in Galilee or Samaria. They're not anywhere near Bethany. So I'm suggesting that Martha and Mary are totally different people than Lazarus and Mary. Mary was, of course, a very common name at that time. But that early readers understanding what the evangelist was suggesting about Mary Magdalene, I'm saying it's not just that she anoints Jesus and then he says, let her save it for the day of my burial. It's also that there's something like seven identical textual parallels between John 11 and John 20. Um, if you read John's gospel in Greek, you see that, you know, obviously her name is Mary and that's the same in both John 11 and the scene between Jesus and Mary Magdalene in John 20. At Jesus's resurrection when he says, you know, when she says Reboni, he, he calls her Mary and she says Reboni and she recognizes him. There's a lot of textual parallels. First of all, the name Mariam, but also she's crying, Klayusa. Um, there's a, 
a tomb, nemeon, that's the same word, with a stone that gets rolled away, lithos, Jesus asks a question to Mary and the others. Where have you laid him? And then basically in John 20, Mary asks Jesus the exact same question. Where you laid him? In John 20. So the, and, and also a very weird word, the word sudarion, which means handkerchief. It's, it's actually a Latin loan word. It's a very rare word. And all of those words are happening in the Lazarus story, and then they pop up again in John 20. And you're like, wait a second. You know, the evangelist, this is not an accident. There's something like seven identical textual parallels happening between the stories. I'm suggesting that the evangelist is insinuating that Lazarus' sister Mary is Mary Magdalene, but is not stating it openly. And it's up to the reader in Greek who reads it several times. When, when you see, you're like, wait a second, this story sounds very familiar. Wait a second, I've heard that phrase before. Wait a second, Jesus asked Mary that question, and now Mary's asking Jesus that question, where you have laid him in John 20. And it's just, it's, it's a subtly, it's very gentle and suggestive. And I'm saying that whoever wrote that Lazarus story, I'm saying was implying to the reader that she was the same woman as Mary Magdalene, but didn't state it openly. And I, I end the article by suggesting perhaps it's because of the Christological confession. So God, tell me about the significance of this confession. Hmm. What does that mean about Mary for you? Well, first of all, I should preface by saying I have not yet found a manuscript where Mary is the person who is giving the confession. Martha does give the confession. And Martha is present in every manuscript that exists or that survives of the Gospel of John. It's just that she blinks in and out. Um, of various verses. Um, and uh, there is a patristic quotation, though, from Tertullian, who was one of our oldest church fathers. He was writing in, I think, 208 AD, um, his, his uh, against Praxius, which was sort of a defense of Christianity. He says there that Mary is the person that gave that Christological confession. And so obviously his copy would have been a late second, early third century copy of John's gospel. And every manuscript of Against Praxius says that Mary gave that. So it's not a scribal, um, or if it is a scribal mistake, it's uh, it's a very, very old. Very consistent. Um, yes, exactly. Every manuscript of Against Praxius says that Mary gave the confession. And the reason it's so important, some of you might know Matthew's gospel, where it's at Caesarea Philippi, and um, Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter is the one that gets it right. He says that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And of course, Jesus's response is very famous. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind in heaven will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will be loosed. You know, so basically, because Peter has given this confession, he becomes the rock that the church is built on. Now, what if a woman gave a confession in John's gospel that was parallel to Peter's. The thing is, we do have a woman, but she's a minor character. Martha is a, you know, she just has that little scene in Luke. She's not threatening. Martha is not threatening. I'm suggesting that in that earliest version of John's gospel, that Mary, Lazarus's sister, she is the one who gives the confession in John eleven twenty seven. Yes, Lord. Well, first Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And her response is, 
Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one coming into the world, which is very, very similar to Peter's confession in Matthew. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God in Matthew 16, 16. So, and by the way, a lot of people are starting to think that John might have had some access to Matthew or I've heard early versions of Matthew. So let's say that John understands how Peter has been presented in Matthew's gospel. And and there's a similar confession in, in Mark's gospel as well from Peter. If, if the author of John sees how Peter is getting portrayed and then basically gives the exact same type of confession to Mary and then suggests that she is Mary Magdalene, that's a problem. That's a problem because then the same woman confesses Jesus is the Christ, anoints Jesus, stands by him at the cross, unlike the men, goes to the empty tomb, is the one and only first person to see the risen Jesus, and then gets an apostolic commission from Jesus to go and tell everybody else about the resurrection. That's a very important character. I'm suggesting that that is the one person, the one Mary that we that the gospel of that the author of John presented and she is not explicitly identified as the Magdalene in John 11 precisely because the author knows how controversial that's going to be because she's threatening to Peter so instead she's just Mary but there's all these connections made with Mary Magdalene and i'm saying that the early copyists of John understood exactly what was going on and they said uh 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 What they did was they sourced Martha from Luke's gospel and they stuck her into John's gospel so that now Martha gets the confession. Because she's Mary's sister, Mary's identity is switched. She's not Mary Magdalene anymore. Now she is the Mary who sat quietly at Jesus's feet in Luke's gospel, who is definitely not Mary Magdalene. And then Mary Magdalene still has her stuff at the cross in the empty tomb. So she has been divided into three women. She has been diluted and demoted. She no longer has that central role I, that I suggest she's supposed to have in the Gospel of John, as Peter has in the Gospel of Matthew. And so if we have Peter the Rock and Mary the Tower. Exactly. What are the early church complications that may have arisen? Because I know that you've looked at this as well. Well, you know, early church fathers, including Tertullian, and of course, you know, decisions that were made you know, about the Montanists. And of course, we, we just see that women are not allowed to teach. Women are not allowed to preach. They're not allowed to baptize. They're not allowed to give the Eucharist. And you see, the thing is that it's not just that it's condemned by the church fathers, which they do. They Women are not allowed to do those sorts of things. We also see texts that were suppressed, such as the Gospel of Mary, where Mary comes into conflict with Peter, <laughs> the Gospel of Philip, where she comes into conflict with the disciples generally, the Gospel, the Pista Sophia, where she comes into conflict with Peter, and the Gospel of Thomas, where she comes into conflict with Peter, <laughs> and they're all <laughs> saying, yeah, she's not worthy, or she should be quiet, or, uh, you know, they're jealous of her, because Jesus loves her more than them. Those are the kinds of themes that we get in those gospels that did not make it into the canon and so the fact that we have those sorts of texts if it's just one text then you're like oh that's one author's idea but the fact that you have it in four different texts that have only survived through happenstance this this independent attestation of a problem that there seems to be an issue with mary and her authority especially as uh, against peter so 
Uh, my question is, I have I have a question and I have a theory. Okay. Uh, so my question, my question is about um, why you think the changes and additions in the manuscripts haven't been noticed before. Mm-hmm. And my theory is that these subtle things that we see, that we notice that the author seems to want us to notice. In my experience, uh, the women that I've led in Bible study have picked up on things mm. that other people have never picked up on before. And I I wonder if I wonder if it's a thing about being a woman. I have no idea if it is. Mm. Um, but I've led studies before where my, my husband, who's a theologian and text critic, has suddenly gone, I've never noticed that. <laughs> um, but the women in the group are all like, well, I saw that last time we looked at it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what, what do you think? Why haven't, why haven't we picked these things up? Well, I actually think there is at least three reasons why. First of all, Papyrus 66, which is the manuscript, that's the oldest copy that we have of John 11. It's copied around 200 AD, though the dating is, it's paleographically dated, so it's impossible to date precisely, but that's usually when it's dated, to around 200 AD. That manuscript has 450 corrections made to it. (laughs) Most people don't know that the oldest copy of the Gospel of John has 450 corrections made to it. But in if if it's your job to be cataloging all 450 of those, your eyes probably start to glaze over at a certain point. And so I think that Papyrus 66 is sort of a sea of problems. And um, so I think that that might be why it was not paid so much attention to. Not everybody had written a song about Mary Magdalene when they look at Papyrus 66. So they're not necessarily focusing on that word, Maria, like I was. Are you saying David Parker hasn't really... I don't think he's written a song. (laughs) Yeah, I do have an album called Magdalene. Um, Yeah, and um, so that's the first reason. Secondly, the words Maria and Martha are very similar in the Greek. They They only differ by one letter. And... People like your husband are well aware that scribes make lots of little mistakes all the time. And so that's that's the kind of thing that they might not pay such close attention to. Uh, actually, so I, I'm actually going to say there's four reasons. Um, the third reason is because of the work of the International Greek New Testament Project and the, the INTF, which is, I think, German, so I'm not going to be able to pronounce it in Münster, Germany. These, these two centers in Birmingham and in Münster they have transcribed hundreds of copies of the Gospel of John so that lay people, lay people who just wrote a song about Mary Magdalene can go look on the internet um, and use, don't use Google Translate, but they could use Google Translate and find out some things. Don't do it. I had to learn Greek to really understand. And by the way, once I learned Greek, I found so many more problems, such as the word aute or haute, depending upon the accent marks, um, is a really important word. And I, there was no way I could have understood that there's this correction in Papyrus 66 that alters the meaning of this word that could be referencing one woman, and it sort of takes away that meaning. But I had to learn Greek to see that. And then, of course, I found aute with the dative feminine singular in many, many other manuscripts once I found it in Papyrus 66. And I did have to learn Greek to understand that. I'm just saying that Oh, I see it. Look, I go spun off in other directions. Sorry. You're um, making this order and feel guilty for dropping Greek and doing Hebrew this year. Oh, no, it's all right. Well, I need to learn Hebrew. So I'll ask you questions on Hebrew because oh, that's something, no, it's don't. on my, my list. My four-year-old is better at Hebrew than I am. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, we all should be learning our languages. Because of the work of that, 
you can we can now look at hundreds of manuscripts, um, which was not possible before. Before, you know, it was only the experts who would who would like travel to different libraries and have their collations and then publish them in these books that were held in, you know, fancy libraries. That was the only way to know what was going on in the manuscripts. Because of the internet, we can look at hundreds of manuscripts simultaneously. So that's the third reason is that, um, and I think that I saw that only a year or so after that had gone up. So it was actually pretty quickly after those transcriptions were going up that I found it. I think they were still being transcribed while you did it. Oh, yes. Yes, that's why I only had, that's why I only had 100 when the Harvard Theological Review article was published. And now I've looked at over 250 because they've been adding to it. And by the way, every time they add, I find a whole crop more of manuscripts with Mary's change to Martha's or Aute's that are dative feminine singulars, or there's so many textual, I just, we need to look at all the manuscripts, in my opinion, there's thousands of them, but we need to look at all of the manuscripts of John 11. But the final reason, and I think that this is an important one, is that um, textual criticism is notoriously known for being very white and male. And um, we love them, right? They are lovable, very intelligent men of integrity who are geniuses, and we adore them. Um, but I just don't think that um, I've learned that you you have to have diversity in scholarship. You can't have everybody coming from a similar sort of perspective, because as you were saying in your Bible study, once, you know, women just come with different eyes because we have it's a different experience being a woman in the world than it is being a man. And for whatever reason, you I just think that God loves diversity. And if we're if we're going to be you can't have especially the people who control the text of the Bible, you just can't have that be one very narrow demographic and try to represent the entire world with the eyes of white men who are deciding the correct readings. And I say that with love and respect and um, appreciation for all the work that they do, because it is really good work. But you you do need to have some diversity of, of different perspectives so that when you see the name Mary crossed out, somebody might do something about it. <laughs> um, I think it matters. And not ignore it. <laughs> Definitely. Um. So normally on this podcast, I ask my interviewee uh, who their favourite person in the Bible is. Now, maybe you'll throw me a wild card or maybe it's a silly question to ask you. Who is your favourite biblical woman? Mary. I am shocked. Just Mary, though, because that's a lot of different people. (laughs) I just like Mary. (laughs) Mary generally. I actually, um, I do pray the rosary. I do consider myself to be um, a devotee. I'm very, in that way, I'm very Anglo-Catholic. Um, I, I do have a lot of devotion to uh, Mother Mary. And so I, I feel very close to uh, both Mother Mary and to Mary Magdalene. Amazing. So normally at this point, we would study a woman from scripture together. Um, but of course, that's hmm. all you ever do. <laughs> um, but, um, I wonder about um, helping my listeners kind of along your journey of Mary in John 11. So maybe if we would look at the story as it's presented. Oh, good idea. Canon, and um, and then maybe you could give us what you think it ought to say. Absolutely. Let's see. Well, um, John 11 is a very important, very well-known story. One of the best-known stories in the Bible. This is when... Jesus arrives, uh, well, Jesus has sent a message from the sisters, uh, Mary and Martha, that their brother is ill, and he delays, he waits, and then Lazarus dies. 
while Jesus waits. And then when he shows up in Bethany, finally, Mary and Martha each individually say an identical thing to him, which is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Interesting that they say an identical quote. And then, uh, well, Martha goes first and she has a conversation with Jesus and he he sort of gives her a little theology lesson. <laughs> um, he says, he says, your brother will rise again. And then um, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, the one coming into the world. And then she, right after she says this confession, she runs back. She leaves Jesus there, I guess. And then she runs against Mary. And then Mary comes. Um, and then she talks and she says the same thing. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And then Jesus says, where have you laid him? And then there's this very famous verse, Jesus wept. So then Jesus is very, very greatly disturbed. And um, perhaps it's because Mary was crying and then he was crying. And so he goes and he is his friend, Lazarus. He's going to go and he, he says, take away the stone. And Martha or some manuscripts, Mary, she says, there's a stench. Because he's been dead four days. This is certainly in contrast to the anointing where this, the smell is going to fill the house. Um, that's that's definitely deliberate on the part of the evangelist. There's a yucky smell and then there's going to be a wonderful smell very soon after this. And um, Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? They take away the stone. Jesus prays to the Father and he says, I'm saying this for the sake of the crowd so that they'll believe that you sent me. And then he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And then Lazarus comes out of the tomb and they, um, they take off his hands and his, they take off, they don't take off his hands. That'd be awful. No, they take off, they take off the strips of cloth from his hands and his feet. And um, they unwrap the sudarion, the handkerchief. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. And then soon after that, they have a, a supper in Bethany where Martha serves, though lots of manuscripts Mary serves. And, and Lazarus sits with Jesus at table, and then Mary, in all the manuscripts, anoints Jesus. And so, how do you want us to read this? Well, the first thing that I would start with, especially if I was in a women's theology group, is I would start with John eleven four, where Jesus says, This illness is not unto death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son may be glorified through it. I consider the text to be ill. I think that the text... Mm. Mm, in a theology group, uh, I would say the text may be wounded. There may be a wound in the word. And um, never fear, Jesus knows. And that's why he says this illness is not unto death, but it is for the glory of God so that the Son may be glorified through it. That's how I read it. In fact, as I got really close to the Gospel of John, that's when I really cemented my faith as a Christian. I know that some people, Bart Ehrman is on my committee. Bart Ehrman is a very famous text critic who has said that the Bible was changed. But I, my approach is actually very, very faith-based. I'm not interested in like suggesting that we can't trust the Bible. I'm suggesting that the Bible's, let's not make an idol out of the Bible. The, the Bible is a is it living text, which David Parker said <laughs> very famously. And to me, this particular verse, John eleven four, is what we need. It is our hermeneutic. <laughs> we need to use John eleven four to read what's happening in this gospel. What I will now do is I will go to my textual reconstruction of John 11, which um, is based in the manuscripts. And so if people have John 11 in front of them, 
Um, I know I just sort of read out the story. But Charlotte, would you be willing to read the first five verses of John's Gospel according to the Bible? And then I will read the first verses um, of John 11 according to the Reconstruction. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So I'm going to read you guys a different version of that story that is based on some of the oldest and most important manuscripts of John's Gospel that we have. There was a certain sick man, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, his sister. Now this was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore Mary sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, the one you love is sick. But when Jesus heard, he said to her, The sickness is not unto death, but it is for the glory of God so that the Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Lazarus and his sister. So that's a different version of the story, with just Lazarus and Mary. My my, view, my listeners can't see your face, but I can see the love when you're reading that. Like, mm. you, you love it. Well, I'm suggesting that that might be what the evangelist wrote that has been lost for 1,800 years that maybe we can now access thanks to the work of your husband. Well, and don't give me. too much credit to that white man. Oh, well, no, <laughs> but I, I'm standing on the shoulders of those men who did all that work. I mean, I'm relying on those transcriptions. I'm relying on the work of um, geniuses who suggested that we, um, that, that the text is living. Uh, these, I'm standing on the shoulders of, of lots and lots of white men. <laughs> and of Mary Magdalene um, perhaps <laughs> um, I, mean, I mean it's incredible the work that you do really uh, I'm going to sound all gushy now and I hate that but um, it really inspires Americans love that Americans love lay it. women <laughs> well it, it, it really inspired uh, the lay women I was teaching um, who I've now I've now left they're being looked after by other leaders but in the women's theology network we're trying to plant more of those kinds of groups and the women their their imagination was really captured by what you do uh, because i think the idea of the bible being a living text really speaks to women who haven't really had access to reading the bible in that way before mm. and for whom some of the most poignant stories are not in the lectionary and they don't mm. get to read and they don't get to see themselves in the text. Mm. And so actually um, this study, which, you know, studying an MA thesis on a Thursday afternoon in your local cafe is a bit of a weird thing to do. Um, <laughs> but they loved it. They mm. loved it. And so I, I suppose what I need to say in the gushiest way possible, which English people hate, um, is uh, thank you thank you so much for all your work and thank you for speaking to me today 
Oh, it is my pleasure. It is so my pleasure to bring this information to other people. To And uh, I hope to be inspirational, in, especially for women of faith who have felt oppressed by the biblical text at times. What I'm hoping to provide by this thesis is, um, is a bit of hope that, um, that in certain, I know that certain verses of the Bible are just not going to be friendly to women <laughs> to begin with, but some books of the Bible, I'm suggesting that possibly the Gospel of John intended to give Mary Magdalene the same authority that the Gospel of Matthew gives to Peter. And that's a Christianity I want to be a part of, you know? And it's where there's multiple voices that are honored and multiple voices preserved. And the thing is, is that the Gospel of John is in our Bibles and these manuscripts do survive. And we do have brains and we do have expertise. And it's possible that what John was trying to say about Mary Magdalene and honestly about Jesus, I'm suggesting that that was a truth that the world could not receive which John predicts. John says that the spirit of truth could not be received. And I'm saying this is very, very Johannine. Very Johannine. And I suggest that perhaps even this mm, wound in the word, and hopefully the healing of that wound, is should be seen through this lens of John 11, 4. The illness is not unto death, but it's for the glory of God, so that we can glorify the Son through it. So, to, I mean, it's actually, for me, very good news for Christianity, suggesting that um, that God pervades the text transmission and the text and waits for us until we are ready. Waits for the women. Waits for the women until we are ready. And we need to stand up for ourselves as well. We need to educate ourselves. We need to look. We need to study. We need to have women's theology groups. We need to go get MAs and MDivs and PhDs so that we aren't relying on somebody who doesn't have our needs to tell us what the truth is. We can go and find it for ourselves. Um, and I think God has waited for that as well. <laughs> You have been listening to the Women's Theology Speakeasy. Please subscribe and tune in again.